Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash DZY. This independent learning activity is funded by Eli Lilly Canada Incorporated. Welcome to this activity on CDK4-6 inhibitors in the HR-positive, HER2-negative, high-risk early breast cancer. Today, we will discuss the recent data on the use of CDK4-6 inhibitors in the adjuvant setting and how the changing treatment landscape will impact our clinical practice. Primary resistance or endocrine therapy failure in the first-line setting in hormone-positive breast cancer is still a real threat. The definition of primary resistance is the development of disease recurrence within two years of being on endocrine therapy. It is important to find strategies to delay resistance in the adjuvant setting to prevent the onset of metastatic disease. CDK4-6 inhibitors such as palbociclib, ribociclib, and abemaciclib have revolutionized treatment for metastatic hormone-positive HER2-negative breast cancer, prolonging progression-free survival when added to endocrine therapy. Motivated by the success in the metastatic setting, tolerable side effect profiles, and mechanism of action, these drugs have been under study in the adjuvant setting. We know that the risk of early recurrence is highest in a subset of patients that have node-positive disease. There are other high-risk features that make patients more likely to have early recurrence. These include clinical and pathologic features, such as age of the patient, menopausal status, tumor size, especially if it's over 5 centimeters, grade of the tumor if it's high grade, such as grade 3, a high KI-67, as well as genomic features such as oncotype DX or mammoprint scores. This shows the studies looking at CDK4-6 inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. Data has shown benefit for both abemaciclib and most recently for ribociclib. Abemaciclib is approved for adjuvant use in Canada. So let's take a look at the evidence that led to abemaciclib's approval. The Monarch E study looked at adjuvant abemaciclib with high-risk patients with hormone-positive, HER2-negative, node-positive early breast cancer. Of note, patients in cohort 1 had either 4 or more positive lymph nodes or 1 to 3 positive lymph nodes and at least one of the following high-risk features, tumor size greater than 5 centimeters or histological grade 3 disease. When it comes to the results for the Monarch E study, this study showed a 34% reduction in the risk of developing an invasive disease-free survival event, as well as a significant reduction in the risk of developing distant relapse. What we also see is an ongoing benefit after a two-year mark when patients discontinue therapy. When we look at safety, the addition of abemaciclib to endocrine therapy results in a higher incidence of grade 3 or higher adverse events, 49.7% versus 16.3% with endocrine therapy alone. These adverse events were predominantly due to lab cytopenias, such as neutropenia. Discontinuation of abemaciclib with or without endocrine therapy due to adverse events occurred in 18.5% of patients, and these were mostly due to grade 1 or 2 events. Common adverse events included neutropenia as well as diarrhea. When it comes to diarrhea, it's important to note that this was generally very low grade, grade one or two, as well as short-lived, about eight days or less in duration and did not recur for patients. Recently at ASCO 2023, we saw the data from Natalie, which looked at adjuvant ribociclib taken for three years, in addition to endocrine therapy in hormone-positive, HER2-negative early breast cancer patients. 
When we look at the eligibility criteria, it is important to notice that in Natalie, a broader patient population was included compared to Monarch E. This included patients that were either stage 2 with no negative disease and high-risk features or those who were node positive. When looking at the study results and the primary endpoint, we see an improvement in three-year invasive disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.74, as well as an improvement in distant disease-free survival. Further analysis is ongoing and we eagerly await the final results for overall survival. When it comes to discontinuation for endocrine therapy with ribociclib due to any adverse event, the results are very similar to Monarch E. When it comes to clinically relevant adverse events occurring in the ribociclib arm, the common causes were mostly due to neutropenia as well as liver-related adverse events. Other adverse events of special interest to note was QT prolongation, which occurred in about 4% of patients, and rarely venous thromboembolism, as well as interstitial lung disease. There were two further studies that looked at another CDK4-6 inhibitor, calbociclib, in the adjuvant setting. This includes the PALACE study, as well as the PNLPB study. Let's start with the Penelope B study. This was looking at palbociclib in patients who had received neoadjuvant therapy and had residual disease following neoadjuvant therapy. Patients received palbociclib for about 13 months, and the primary endpoint did not show any significant difference in invasive disease-free survival. The PALACE study was also a negative study. This showed no difference in invasive disease-free survival after patients received about two years of adjuvant palbociclib. Of note, around 27% of patients discontinued palbociclib due to toxicity. So this begs the question, why do we see two negative studies with Pallas and Penelope B and two positive studies with Monarch E and Natalie? In the Pallas study, about 27% of patients discontinued palbociclib early due to neutropenia for the most part, compared to about 19% of early discontinuation due to toxicity in Monarch E and the Natalie studies. Abetaciclib is also dosed continuously versus other CDK4-6 inhibitors that are intermittently dosed. For example, they are taken for three weeks on and one week off. This may lead to changes in micrometastatic activation. Furthermore, there are distinct pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties comparing all of the agents. And this may be due to varying activity against CDK4 and CDK6 noted in preclinical models. It is also important to note that different patient populations were included in each study. For example, the eligibility criteria varied slightly between the Natalie and the Monarch E study when looking at patients who were included that were either node positive or node negative. Finally, treatment duration may be a factor as well. Palbociclib patients often received adjuvant therapy for just about over a year, whereas for Monarch E, it was for about two years, and for Natalie, it was three years. So this could also lead to differences that we observed. So it is important to keep in mind that these agents are not all the same, but we do have two CDK4-6 inhibitors that have shown benefit in the adjuvant setting and could help improve outcomes for patients with hormone-positive, HER2-negative, early-stage breast cancer. Let's look at a case example of a patient who may benefit from adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibition. Judy is a 61-year-old postmenopausal female with newly diagnosed invasive mammary carcinoma. She undergoes breast-conserving surgery with central node biopsy, and the final pathology shows a single foci measuring 3.2 centimeters, negative margins, and regional lymph nodes with two involved, including extranodal extension. 
The grade is high, grade three. KI67 is also high at 40%, and biomarkers show ERPR strong expression and HER2 negative disease. She undergoes genomic testing with Oncotype DX, showing a recurrent score at 30. This places her in the high-risk category, and she therefore receives adjuvant chemotherapy as well as adjuvant radiation. She has also started on adjuvant endocrine therapy with anastrozole. How can we further reduce Judy's risk of breast cancer recurrence? Given this patient's high risk of recurrence, for example, being node positive, having a high grade, a high case I-67, as well as a high oncotype, Judy is indeed eligible for adjuvant abemaciclib, which is also Health Canada approved. When it comes to adding on adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor, it is important to discuss these options with patients and for patients to recognize the benefit as well as the side effects that may be encountered. I often do find that patients are willing to try abemaciclib understanding the risk of diarrhea, but also knowing that this may offer better benefit in terms of improving their survival rates and outcomes. Not all patients receive chemotherapy for whatever reason, and it could be patient choice. So that's just a thing I've noted. Patients say, no, I don't want chemo. And then I say, okay, but you're also eligible for this drug. Then they'll say, okay, I'll take that. In summary, adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibition with abemaciclib and ribociclib have shown impressive benefit in patients with hormone-positive HER2-negative early breast cancer at high risk of recurrence. Determining which patients may benefit will require shared decision-making and a consideration of the risk factors for recurrence with the individual patient. Since abemaciclib is Health Canada approved, clinicians may request KN67 through their local laboratory in order to ensure a patient is indeed eligible to receive adjuvant abemaciclib. As we saw in the previous presentation, one of the factors that may explain the benefit seen in Monarch E is that most patients stayed on therapy with low discontinuation rates due to adverse events compared to other studies. It is important to recognize and appropriately manage adverse events in the adjuvant setting as we want to ensure that patients are able to remain on treatment, maintain a good quality of life, maintain adequate dose intensity, as ultimately this is curative intent therapy. In this presentation, we'll take a look at key differences in toxicity profiles in the CDK6 inhibitors that have demonstrated efficacy in the adjuvant setting. Importantly, we'll talk about how we can manage these safety concerns to allow patients to benefit from treatment. We know that there are different selectivity profiles when it comes to the various CDK4-6 inhibitors, and this does have clinical relevance. For example, those treatments that selectively inhibit CDK6 are often involved in the differentiation of hematologic precursor cells. As such, we can often see myelosuppression associated with these various CDK4-6 inhibitors with a higher rate of neutropenia observed with palbociclib and ribociclib and less so with abemaciclib. 
Abemaciclib has a greater affinity for CDK4 versus CDK6, which may also be a reason why the continuous dosing is also possible. Finally, abemaciclib also has an affinity for CDK9, which potentially explains the rate of gastrointestinal adverse events such as diarrhea and nausea. Abemaciclib and ribociclib have both shown positive data in hormone-positive or 2 negative early-stage breast cancer, with abemaciclib now approved for the use in the adjuvant setting, whereas as we've seen earlier, palbociclib did not. So let's focus on the safety profile of these two agents, abemaciclib and ribociclib, if we look at the Monarch E study, the common clinically relevant side effects encountered with abemaciclib include diarrhea, neutropenia, nausea, fatigue, anemia, and infections. We'll talk about these in further detail in a moment. With the Natalie study, it is important to note that patients started at a dose of 400 milligrams daily instead of the higher 600 milligram daily seen in the metastatic setting. Most common side effects encountered with ribociclib include neutropenia and rarely febrile neutropenia. One of the most common reasons for discontinuation included liver-related adverse events. When it comes to adverse events of special interest, there are some rare side effects that can be encountered with these medications. It is not only important for clinicians, but important to also educate patients so that they are well aware of them and know what to watch out for. This may include signs and symptoms of venous thromboembolism, as well as interstitial lung disease. It is important to recognize these adverse events it may impact treatment selection. For example, if a patient is on certain medication that may increase and prolong QT interval, then we may want to avoid the addition of ribociclib as it is known to prolong QT. Let's focus particularly on some of the unique safety features of abemaciclib and ribociclib. Diarrhea was the most frequent clinically relevant and adverse event with abemaciclib. It is important to note that the median time to onset is about one week and the average duration is short-lived, usually between 6 to 12 days. About 25% of patients who experienced diarrhea did require dose modifications as per the clinical trial. We know that patient-reported outcomes are important to understand, as this affects the ability to understand if patients are able to remain on treatment long-term. When we look at the patient-reported outcomes for Monarch E, at three months and onwards, most patients reported that there were a little bit or somewhat bothered by diarrhea. Most of the adverse events encountered with CDK4-6 inhibitors can be managed with appropriate dose modifications or additional supportive care. Depending on the grade encountered, this may require suspending the medication until symptoms improve. For example, if a patient experiences grade 1 diarrhea, so less than 4 stools a day, no dose reduction is required. However, if a patient has grade 2 diarrhea, so 4 to 6 stools per day, that does not resolve within 24 hours, it is important to suspend the medication until toxicity resolves to less than 4 stools per day. If the diarrhea resolves, then no further dose reduction is required. However, if there is persistent diarrhea, then one may consider resuming at a lower dose. It is important to counsel patients on the use of antidiarrheal agents such as loperamide, as well as to increase fluid intake for the management of diarrhea. So now that we've looked at the adverse events of interest related to abemaciclib, let's move on to ribociclib. 
As mentioned earlier, patients received a dose of 400 milligrams a day instead of the 600 milligrams a day used in the metastatic setting. What we see here is improvement in QTC prolongation in the Natalie study in the adjuvant setting at 4.2% compared to 6.5% seen in the metastatic setting as per the Mona Lisa study. It is important to obtain a baseline ECG prior to starting therapy. It is also important to know the initial medications patients are taking at the time of starting ribociclib and to counsel patients to notify their healthcare providers about any changes or modifications that are done to their additional medication. One can also monitor serum electrolytes as clinically indicated, as this can also prolong QTC interval. When it comes to management of QTC interval, for example, if the level is greater than 480 milliseconds, it is important to briefly interrupt ribocyclib, repeat the ECG, and if it resolves, one may resume ribocyclib at the same dose. Clinicians can also consider discussing patients at multidisciplinary rounds and may also consider referral to cardio-oncology and having involvement of other healthcare professionals as well. When it comes to managing liver toxicities with ribocyclib, it is important to recognize that dose modification and discontinuation may be considered. One may also consult a product monograph for further recommendation. For example, if one encounters grade 1 elevation in liver enzymes, then no dose adjustment is required. However, if there is grade 2 or higher elevation in liver enzymes that are encountered, then dose interruption or discontinuation may be considered when it comes to managing other clinically relevant adverse events with CDK4-6 inhibitors, it is important to recognize the adverse events that may occur with each medication. This may include cytopenia, such as neutropenia, venous thromboembolism, and interstitial lung disease. One may always consult the product monograph in order to ensure that appropriate dose modifications, dose interruptions, and discontinuations as appropriate are implemented. Additional therapeutic management, multidisciplinary discussion, and referral to other specialists may also be implemented as needed. So going back to the case, when starting Judy on adjuvant therapy, it was important to counsel her on a few important points. Because she has been started on abemaciclib, she should watch for loose stool, fatigue, fever, and chills, which could be representative of diarrhea, neutropenia, as well as symptoms of anemia, respectively. I have noted when I discuss these options with patients, they are often quite willing to try abemaciclib, understanding the risk of diarrhea, but also knowing that with the use of prophylactic loperamide, these symptoms can often be short-lived. Most patients have actually done quite well. In summary, CDK4-6 inhibitors are utilized in the adjuvant setting for high-risk early-stage breast cancer, and these are very well tolerated. The safety profile and management is considered acceptable. Particularly, unique adverse events are seen for individual agents such as diarrhea for abemaciclib, prolonged QTC for ribociclib. Patient education is important, as well as multidisciplinary toxicity monitoring in order to identify drug-related problems, reduce hospitalization, reduce treatment delays and or discontinuations, as well as to improve quality of life and adherence.
Hello, my name is Dr. Kasia Jerzak. I'm a medical oncologist at the Sunnybrook Odette Cancer Center, which is affiliated with the University of Toronto. Today, we'll be talking about how to tailor treatment strategies for premenopausal women who have high-risk hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative early breast cancer by integrating CDK4-6 inhibitors with angiogram therapy. A high proportion of our patients with early breast cancer are premenopausal, and most of these patients have hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative disease. But unfortunately, despite our use of chemotherapy and standard endocrine therapy, we do see that these premenopausal women with hormone-positive breast cancer have a high risk of recurrence, not only during the first five years, but also when you look at longer-term data, the risk of distant recurrence in those women with a high burden of nodal disease especially can approach 50%. So for that reason, I think it's really important that we think about how to best optimize systemic therapy for premenopausal women, high-risk hormone-positive or negative breast cancer. What is the evidence behind CDK4-6 inhibitors for treatment premenopausal women with early breast cancer? Well, we do have very strong evidence from Monarch e-clinical trial that abemocycliv in the adjuvant setting together with endocrine therapy is effective and hence its approval by Health Canada. Of course, this was studied in quite a large randomized trial over 5,000 patients and a high proportion of patients in this study were premenopausal. In fact, it was 43.5% of patients were premenopausal. And you can see in the forest plot here that those premenopausal women did just as well as that of the overall population and maybe numerically even a little better than their postmenopausal counterparts. I think it's quite interesting to see that in the premenopausal women in monarchy, a high proportion actually received tamoxifen as their first endocrine therapy. So that was 57% of patients in this trial who got tamoxifen first. Some of those women received the tamoxifen together with a GnRH receptor agonist and others did not. But I think it's important to keep in mind that tamoxifen actually is an option to use together with a bemocyclic. I personally always try to get my patients who have high-risk hormone-positive virtue-negative breast cancer or premenopausal on optimal endocrine therapy with ovarian function suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor. But due to higher toxicity, that's not always possible and not always compatible with good quality of life. So it's reassuring to me to know that this is a possibility based on the monarchy um, data. It's been very interesting to see some data in support of another CDK4-6 inhibitor for adjuvant treatments. This is ribocyclin that was studied in the Natalie file. This is an early look at the data, but there was a signal of efficacy. Similar to the monarchy study, we're seeing that just over 40% of patients in this trial were premenopausal. The primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. And at this initial efficacy analysis, there was a benefit with a hazard ratio 0.72 in the men and premenopausal women, which is encouraging. So how do you decide on which hormonal therapy to use with a CDK4-6 inhibitor in premenopausal women with early breast cancer? 
Let's examine some of the hormonal therapy data. I think it, to really emphasize the optimal therapy when possible, use ovarian function suppression plus NAI. But toxicity can be an issue. Bromatase inhibitors are more likely to cause musculoskeletal toxicity, can result in bone mineral density lowering effects. And together with ovarian function suppression, it can really magnify some of the side effects in terms of hot flushes, vaginal dryness, discharge, mood changes, and some women find it really hard to tolerate. So in some cases, tamoxifen can be used as an alternative. We do have to keep in mind, though, that tamoxifen does have a small risk of venous thromboembolism, and there is a small risk of QTC prolongation. When we look at safety data in the monarchy trial for the premenopausal women who got endocrine therapy plus abemocycleb, I think it's reassuring to see that premenopausal women had a similar safety profile uh, consistent with that of the overall patient population. And in the Natalie study, you don't have data specifically yet for the premenopausal patient population in terms of toxicity. But I think it's important to keep in mind that we will be waiting for more data, longer term follow-up for this patient population. It's again encouraging to see that initial analysis showed a positive result. We should be thinking about optimizing endocrine therapy. As was mentioned, toxicity plays a part, and sometimes tamoxifen is better tolerated and preferred by the patient. We do perhaps keep in mind, though, that tamoxifen does have a small risk of QTC prolongation. And for that reason, we cannot use tamoxifen together with ribocyclob, which also carries a risk of QTC prolongation. Fortunately, in the Natalie trial, women were not allowed to receive tamoxifen, but assuming you're thinking about abemocyclic, you have the option of using either tamoxifen or the aromatase inhibitor. And this is a decision that you have to make together with your patients. Another thing to keep in mind always is fertility considerations. So this is often a discussion that happens at the time of initial consultation, especially when you're thinking about using chemotherapy. In my practice, you know, women who are considering to expand their family, I always refer them to a fertility specialist to think about egg harvesting, intentionally storage, embryos or eggs to help achieve a pregnancy later down the line if they're interested in doing that. So in conclusion, I think it's important to really try to optimize our therapies for premenopausal women with high-risk hormone positive or two negative breast cancer. Many of these women do benefit from chemotherapy, and we have to try to get them an optimal endocrine therapy with the AI and OFS. Regardless of the endocrine backbone, we do have to try to keep in mind as well the availability of adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor. We have seen historically that there's a high risk of recurrence. Now with optimal adjuvant strategies, hopefully we can see that longer-term outcomes will be more favorable. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.